I personally was going down a very specific path. This was a path of self-indulgence, a path of sin, a path of loneliness, a path filled with insecurity of all kinds, and a path that seemed and appeared to be completely absent of any notion of God. I was going down this path, and as I walked and journeyed by myself on this path really towards destruction, if my desires for myself and my dreams for myself would have been fulfilled, I would have absolutely come to ruin. I would have destroyed my life and those around me. And yet, as I walked down this path, I I came to a fork in the road. I came to this stopping point. I came to a point where I heard a message, a message that I, I had, I had heard the, the components that make up this message many times, but my heart and my eyes were darkened to the message. I'd heard it, but I, I heard it for the very first time, really, truly, I heard it for the very first time. I, I believe because of the power and grace of God, he opened up my eyes and he opened up my heart to hear this message for the very first time, 20 years ago. This was the gospel message. Hearing the gospel message and the spirit of God opening up my heart and opening up my eyes to see it, to understand it, and to respond to it. This was the fork in the road for me. This was the fork in the road for my life. My life stopped right there and redirected. And when I look back on the last 20 years, every joy, every blessing, every relationship, every intimate moment with God or with others, everything good in my life flows from this one moment. It flows from the gospel. It flows from this fork in the road moment of responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I think about my hope for the future, My hope for the future is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a gospel hope. It is a hope that cannot be shaken by trials or suffering because it is based on the promises of Jesus Christ, the steadfast promises of Jesus Christ for the future. My life was radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that many of you can relate to that. And my hope and prayer is that if you cannot relate to it yet, that you will be able to relate to it as the time passes. Even throughout this series, we're gonna start this four-week journey of understanding the gospel, meditating on the gospel, and learning to communicate the gospel message more effectively, to communicate it with love and truth and boldness and walking in the spirit. Would you pray with me as we get started here? Lord, We submit ourselves to you, our minds and our hearts tonight. And uh, God, I I pray for energy. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in us tonight, God, that you'd wake us up, Lord, that you'd give us expectation. Just agree with me if you believe this, if you believe this, if you desire this, if you want this to be your prayer. God, would you speak to us tonight through your word? Soften our hearts to hear from you, to know you, to be changed by you, to live for you. Lord, help us understand 
the things that we don't understand that we need to understand. Pray that you would reveal the deep thoughts of our heart, Lord, tonight. God, that you would direct us and that you would really grow us deep as a community and as a church family, Lord. Grow us deep. Protect us, Lord, and help us to live our lives for Jesus Christ alone. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're gonna take, I'm really excited about this. I feel like this is from the Lord. He's leading us to do this at this season, at this time. Um, And I think it's gonna be very, very relevant for uh, all of you, really, quite frankly, uh, and myself included. And it's this, this time of, again, understanding and meditating on and learning how to communicate the gospel message uh, not only to those around us in our sphere of influence and our, our, our kids included. I hope that's something that really for you parents comes out of these four weeks, a, a boldness and a vision and clarity on how to communicate the gospel message to our, to our children. Um, that's one kind of uh, aspect of, of the series that I think is going to be really beneficial, but also to communicate it to ourselves, to preach it to ourselves, that we might continually be uh, reminded of and transformed by the gospel. So first of all, I want to say just the word gospel, it it simply means, this is not a definition, but more a synonym, the good news. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not just a good thing. It's not just a nice story. It is the definitive good news that answers our deepest questions as human beings. It gets to the heart of what we need, our fundamental need, and it gives us hope, the hope that we so desperately need, a hope that is is true, the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, we'll get into a definition in a little bit, but the very first thing I wanted to do, and I do this often when it comes to any topic of study, is I just, if there's a, a particular phrase or word that's being used in the New Testament or Old Testament, just look up every reference, every single time that phrase is used in the New Testament or Old Testament or a similar phrase, and just go through it to, to try and get a feel for, okay, what is, what is the teaching of the whole of Scripture on this particular topic? And so that's what I've been doing recently with the, the gospel, and it's, it's been really, really encouraging. Uh, and I want to just share some of those things real briefly as kind of our first uh, part of the message tonight that I hope will show you the preeminence of the gospel. That is, this is not a secondary teaching. It's not a side thing. It's not like something for really mature Christians to understand. This is an incredibly prominent and significant teaching in Scripture. And I think going through this kind of laundry list of verses will help you get that. So, can we do that together to start things off? We're just going to go through a whole ton of verses, and I'll, I'll make a few comments on them. Okay, so first off, the gospel is alluded to or implied throughout the Old Testament in many, many instances. When you get to the writings of the prophets later in the Old Testament, so this is the time leading up to Jesus' birth, you begin to see more clarity in terms of what the gospel is, this word, the gospel, the, the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word, the gospel, it begins to, to come into focus, and it's used in the prophets, specifically by the prophet Isaiah. So let's look at one example of that in Isaiah 61.1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In other words, to proclaim the gospel. Remember, those two are synonymous, to the poor. 
In Luke 4, Jesus says that he is the one this verse is speaking about. He is the one who is anointed to proclaim the gospel to the poor. This is Jesus' ministry and mission. We see even in the Old Testament before the birth of Christ. Let's move to Matthew 4.23. Jesus went throughout, and I'm going to move through these quick, so you're probably not going to be able to turn to them in your Bible. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus, man, he could have done so many things, right? And he did do a lot. But at the heart of his ministry, his earthly ministry, was the proclamation of the gospel. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ decided to do with his time. That is to proclaim the gospel um, to small groups and large groups and individuals. And he commissioned his disciples to do the same. The gospel was going out in power through Jesus. Mark 10, 29. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. The gospel message is worth tremendous sacrifice. Not only is the gospel worth sacrificing the things that are destructive and the things that are bad and the things that are not from God. The gospel is worth sacrificing even good things, even things that are from the Lord, even things that are wonderful. And the promise of Jesus is that every sacrifice made for the sake of the gospel will not go unrewarded. Every sacrifice made for the sake of the gospel will be rewarded by Jesus Christ himself when he comes back. 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. And this is Paul writing. Instead, instead of being ashamed, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We are invited to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We are empowered by the power of God. We ought to and can suffer for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Here in Matthew 24 and also in Mark 13, Jesus communicates that it's in the context of him communicating a whole host of things, one of which is that he's going to come back, and it's going to be this cataclysmic day of the Lord, day of judgment. <clears throat> but what he's saying here is that the gospel message is so paramount, it's so important, it's so far from being just a side thing that I'm not coming back until every ethnic group around the world has heard the gospel message. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue will hear the gospel before Jesus Christ returns and before the end of this age. In Acts 20, verse 24, this is Paul speaking. However, 
I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news or the gospel of God's grace. Paul, who is, aside from God, aside from Jesus, he's, he's probably the greatest protagonist of the New Testament, right? His aim, his sole task was testifying to the gospel of God's grace. This was his purpose in life. This is what he did. This is what he ate, slept, breathed to testify to the gospel of God's grace. In Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. The gospel is not a message, just a message. The God, there is power in the gospel that literally saves every single person that believes in the good news of Jesus Christ. Saves us from so many things, the least of which is not judgment and hell. And there are so many more things to go along with that. We are saved by the gospel. Uh, Romans 15, 15 through 16. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're all, or mo at least mostly, Gentiles in this room. And Paul says here that the effect of the gospel is for its hearers, who are non-Jewish hearers who, who seem to have no access to God before the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth, for, for us to become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Spirit of God, set apart by Him. This is some of the fruit of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stands. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So, Christians hear the gospel, receive the gospel, take their stand on the gospel, are saved by the gospel, and must hold firmly to the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> Galatians 1, 6 through 8. For I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be, let them be under God's curse. Paul is saying here, even for himself, the consequences of preaching any gospel other than the good news, other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, ought to be um, being cursed under God's curse. The stakes are very, very high. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When we as believers heard the gospel, the message of truth, when we believed 
we received the Holy Spirit as a deposit to dwell within us, to change us, and to guarantee a glorious inheritance when Jesus comes back one day. Go ahead and skip forward to 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 through 10. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day that he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled, to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Here we see Again, this teaching that's very, very prominent throughout the New Testament, that Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus comes back, there will be two groups of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. The difference between these two groups of people is the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who know Jesus, those who have received the righteousness of Jesus as a gift by faith. And those who stand on their own, representing themselves, stuck in their own sin. And the consequences are so significant and so weighty. Everlasting destruction to be shut out of the presence of the Lord forever. This is what over and over again, Jesus and the New Testament writers describe as hell, one of the consequences of hell is to be excluded from the presence and the kingdom of God forever and ever. But for those who have responded to the gospel message, who have received the gift of Jesus, there is life and inclusion in God's family and his kingdom forever. This is so weighty and so serious. 2 Timothy 1.10, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Through the gospel, Jesus has destroyed death and has brought eternal life to be given as a gift to all men and women. Death is not the glorious end of the individual human existence. Death is not okay. Death is not right. There's a reason when we think of our own non-existence, it feels terrifying. This is not the, the way things ought to be. And it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ alone that he has defeated death, that he has conquered death, that he has made another way, a way to live eternally with him in paradise, part of his kingdom and family. Okay, so... <clears throat> That's the laundry list of passages. I skipped a couple because I saw it was going to take a while. Um, and really, I, I skipped many. But I, I want to give us a feel of how monumental this teaching is. This is no secondary teaching to Christianity. This is the rock, the foundation of our faith. This is the message that the world needs to hear, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It really, really matters. And I hope we, we feel that and know that for ourselves and for others around us as well as we go through this series. So here's, here's the question. 
We've seen through these passages that the gospel is important. What is the gospel? Really, really, what is the gospel? The good news is, is merely a synonym. What is the definition of the gospel? The, well, let me, let me give you a moment to reflect on that. And actually, if you would, would you, would you take a moment and, and write down in your own mind, what, what do you believe is a proper definition for the gospel? And you're, for some, it might be, I don't know. I just don't know. That's okay. For many in here, you, you do have a definition in your mind of what the gospel is. And it may be spot on, and it, it may not be. But go ahead and take a minute before we move on to the next phase here. And just and jot down on your phone or journal or whatever, wherever you take notes, what is the gospel? Okay, and as we go on to tonight and even the next few weeks, it, it will give you an opportunity to just evaluate kind of where you've been. Um, what you wrote might be really confirmed by what we talk about, or you might see, man, my, my definition of this foundational teaching is not quite, is just not quite there. And that's okay. Praise the Lord for this opportunity to learn and grow for each and every one of us. So the gospel, an interesting thing about the gospel is that these, these passages and many others Man, we see how paramount the teaching is, but there's not one passage that gives a simple, pure, exclusive definition of what the gospel is. I think it's not quite like this, but I think of the doctrine of the Trinity. This is a very foundational teaching that Christians ought to know and understand and believe about the nature of God. There's one God who lives in three persons for all of eternity. But there's not one verse, one particular verse in the New Testament that exactly lays out word for word what the doctrine of the Trinity is. The doctrine of the Trinity is a synthesis of the teaching of the New Testament that there is one God in three persons. This is what the Trinity is. The gospel, it's not, it's not quite that. It's, it's not quite um, what the Trinity is. But... Um, There's not one passage that we ought to look to for an exact definition, a word-for-word definition. And that's one reason why if you poll 100 pastors or theologians and ask them, what exactly is the gospel? If you Google it on your phones, if you find some document, and I, I've <clears throat> uh, looked recently, you know, all, the, the prominent Christian teachers and theologians, at, at one point or another, all of us, put pen to paper and define what is the gospel? The answers are not exactly the same in the verbiage, in the wording. They're, they're quite different, in fact. The content, however, is the same. And so as we seek to define the gospel, what matters is not the exact wording of what we're going to come up with tonight, but the content matters tremendously. It really matters. And so we're going to look now to two verses. The verses we have looked to have more They've not given a definitive 
explanation or definition of what the gospel is. They've more explained the fruit of the gospel, the preeminence of the gospel, the importance of the gospel. Let's look at a couple verses now that give more of a foundational definition for what is the gospel. And the first of those verses is Mark 1.1. It's the beginning of the gospel of Mark. The beginning of the good news or the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So, the first four books of the New Testament, they're referred to as the Gospels. And this is a fitting way to describe these books based on how Mark describes itself. The beginning of Mark, the very, very first verse, is the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So what we see here in Mark is that the gospel, it is about the identity of Jesus as Messiah and the Son of God. It's about Jesus' identity as the Messiah and the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is our Savior. He's the one foretold by the Old Testament prophets. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is the Messiah. He's the one who's come to save us. He is divine. He's not just a person. He's not just a philosopher. He's not just a prophet. His identity is divine. Secondly, what we see here is that the gospel is what's recorded in the book of Mark. If Mark 1.1 is the beginning of the gospel, then the rest of Mark is the rest of the gospel, right? I think that makes sense. And so the gospel is the work and mission of Jesus, Jesus' work and mission as recorded in the four gospels. Jesus' work and mission as recorded in the four gospels. Now here's a very, very important question. What was that work and mission? What was that work and mission? And I'll I'll communicate it in three words based on the scriptures. To save sinners. This was the work and mission of Jesus. This is, the gospels are leading up to this point. Jesus does so many things in the gospels. So many incredible things. He reveals the heart of God, the love of God. He he teaches in such a way that undermines the oppressive structures of the time. There truly were oppressive structures and way of thinking among the people in Jerusalem at the time. Jesus undermined those things with his teaching. He healed people with all kinds of diseases. Um, he, he brought these, incre- gave incredible depth and wisdom to the moral commands of God. But it would not be accurate to say that those things were the work and mission of Jesus Christ. If we're going to give a singular definition of what that is, the Gospels are leading to this point. They're leading up to the cross. Everything Jesus does, it funnels to this one point. His disciples and his followers, they were expecting him at this one point to install his kingdom, to overthrow the Roman government, 
and to be the physical reigning king, not in some ethereal sense, but right there, then and there. That's what the disciples meant when they said, well, can we sit at your left and right hands? They wanted to be you know, his cabinet members, basically, in this new government they expected him to install. But instead, this decisive moment was the cross. It was his suffering. It's what the gospels are leading up to. An, an honest reading of the gospels can only lead us to that place. The suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross to save sinners and his resurrection from the dead. This is what the work and mission of Jesus was, to save sinners through the cross and resurrection. Okay, let's look at one other passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stands. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. We've read this earlier. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. So this is the message that is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, and this is Paul, as to one abnormally born. Okay. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, the second half of verse 3 through verse 5. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelfth. This, this is the earliest Christian creed that we have. Maybe the earliest Christian creed, period. But it's most certainly the earliest Christian creed that we have. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5. That is, Paul is not writing in 1 Corinthians 15. He's not writing this for the first time. He is repeating what he received and what he has already passed on to the church in Corinth as a first importance. This is it. This is the first message. This is the very first, most important, most fundamental thing. New Testament scholars, even those who are opposed to the gospel, uh, who are opposed to Christianity, who are opposed to the authority of scripture, pretty much agree that Paul would have received this when he went to Jerusalem about five years after Jesus' resurrection. You can read about this in Galatians chapter one, Paul's journey to Jerusalem and his meeting with the apostles there, he was with them for a couple weeks, that he received, he learned and he received this creed five years, five years after the resurrection. This is 2,000 years ago almost. And if, if, this was received, this was being passed on, this was being used in worship, this was being repeated. There's this formulaic nature that we can't quite get unless you're reading it in Koine Greek, which most of you are not. Um, we can't quite get how formulaic and how creedal this is, but we can get at it a little bit. We can't quite get at the fact it doesn't sound at all like the rest of Paul's writings. It's something clearly that he's passing on. It's using very different verbiage than he uses anywhere else. So this was in use just five years after the resurrection. So this is so close, guys. This is so close to the time that Jesus died 
and rose from the dead. This statement about what is of first importance. And what are the five things here in this creed? Number one, Christ died for our sins. This is of first importance. This is part of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. The literal, physical death of Jesus, not his apparent death, not his supposed death, not something that looked like death, his literal death, and not just his death in a vacuum, his death for our sins, for our sins. His death as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is something that is so popular to attack. And maybe you've not heard these attacks, um, but that is, what is the nature of what Jesus did on the cross? What did he do? Did he die to show us the way? Did he die to to give us a picture of self-sacrifice? Or did he die as the atoning sacrifice for our sins? I think the teaching of the New Testament is clear, that he died as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He was punished, we were punished, vicariously through him. He bore our sins, he became guilty of our sins, he was punished for our sins. This is the testimony of the prophets even before Jesus was born. Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 explain this beautifully, wonderfully, painting a picture of a crucifixion scene and of the future Messiah suffering and bearing the weight of the sins of all mankind. This is essential to the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. It's that second phrase in the first part that is oftentimes not understood. And this is why it's a question I ask often, because I know in my story, I knew Jesus died. I understood that. And I understood the phrase This was a Christian phrase that Jesus died for my sins, but it had no meaning to me. What does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? I couldn't answer that question. The two were very, very unrelated. And when I understood that Jesus became the atoning sacrifice for my sins, that he died in my place, that he took my sins upon himself, he became guilty of my sins and he was punished for them. The light just went off in my mind, in my heart. And I understood the love of God really for the very first time, that he would do this. He would do this for me, a sinner. Okay, so Christ died for our sins. Uh, Number two, this happened to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. So remember, this creed is from like right, right, it's just from the time of the resurrection. I mean, right afterwards. (laughs) This is not years and years later. This is right at the time of the resurrection. So this is before the New Testament was written before any books in the New Testament were written. First Corinthians is very early, written very, very early by Paul. But this creed is long before First Corinthians. So when it says that this happened according to the scriptures, it's talking about the Old Testament, not the New Testament. So what happened to Jesus, his death and his resurrection, according to the scriptures, there is a continuity with the Old Testament. This has been... God has been leading up to this. He's been bringing us to this place. Um, Number three, that Jesus was buried. This this gets around, I think, any 
difficulty in embracing the fact that there was a physical reality of what happened on the cross, that Jesus literally physically died. And maybe you take that for granted and think, why are you focusing so much? Why are they focusing so much? This was really hard for a lot of folks to accept and embrace, and it still is around the world today. Maybe not for you, but for many, many it is, that God took on human flesh. He became man, and he literally, physically died, stopped breathing. This was not an apparent death. He was buried in the tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. This was not disputed by his fans and his haters at the time. They didn't dispute his death and his burial and the empty tomb. The empty tomb's not mentioned in this particular creed, but it's implied, certainly, that the tomb was empty. These things were not disputed by the Christians. They weren't disputed by the religious leaders who were very, very anti-Christian at the time, that Jesus physically died, that he was buried, and that the tomb was found empty. The next thing we find in the creed here is that he was raised. Jesus Christ physically, bodily rose from the dead, never to die again. He could walk through walls and do awesome things, and yet he was still eating with his disciples in his resurrection body. And number five, his various appearances that are laid out. He spent 40 days after the resurrection with his disciples, with his followers, with a crowd of over 500, showing himself, eating with people, being with people, teaching people. And then in front of a whole huge group of people, he ascended into heaven at the end of that 40 days. And he said, go tell everyone this message. Make disciples of all nations. Go, go ahead, get going. Because I'm coming back in the same way he ascended into heaven. He's coming back again. So this is some of the content that makes up the gospel message. So can we, can we try our hand at a definition here? <clears throat> the gospel is the true story of Jesus' identity as Messiah and Lord. His death on a cross as the sacrificial offering for the sins of mankind and his bodily resurrection from the dead. The gospel, it's about who Jesus is and what he has done. The gospel is about Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus. And this definition takes into account the passages that we've read, primarily 1 Corinthians 15 and Mark 1 and some other passages as well. It's, it's a synthesis of various New Testament passages describing the gospel. <clears throat> the gospel is not, it's not a, a self-help type situation. It's, it's not about us. It's not about us. I'm not saying it doesn't include us, it doesn't involve us, it certainly involves us. The implications of the gospel, they're so significant to us. But it's not primarily about us. It's not, um, the gospel is not primarily the way to live your best life now. This is not what the gospel is. The gospel is not about the social implications of what Jesus did, as important as those are. The gospel is not about the works that we do as Christians, the way that we change the world, the way that we preach the gospel. 
That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about, and this is so, so clutch for us to know in our heads and embrace wholeheartedly because this will be attacked. This will be attacked in your life. Culturally, this is attacked. Personally, this will be attacked. The gospel is about Jesus Christ and what he has done. It is about Jesus Christ and what he has done. This is what matters so much. And it's Jesus that will never fail. It's Jesus that will never let you down. It's Jesus alone that is Lord. So again, the gospel is the true story of Jesus' identity as Messiah and Lord, his death on a cross as the sacrificial offering for the sins of mankind, and his bodily resurrection from the dead. This is so awesome what God has done in history. It really is so incredible. And I hope as we spend this time the next few weeks together, we just get floored again in a fresh way by what Jesus has done in history, that we believe it, we really believe it and are changed by it. Okay, so I think there's something that's a little confusing for a lot of us. That is, this is a simple definition of the gospel, right? But there are also a lot of implications that stem from the gospel. And I think when you hear people communicate the gospel differently, part of it is what implications are they including? Are they just, are they, are they just talking about this very simple, this is just about the, uh, the, the work of Jesus, his identity and the work of Jesus on the cross and resurrection? Are they also kind of including some other foundational truths that really in a sense we kind of have to believe in order to believe the gospel? Or are they including some things that follow from the gospel? Like, if we believe the gospel, then it doesn't really make sense if we then don't also believe this. And I think we have freedom, certainly as we're communicating the gospel, to include these implicit gospel truths. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, or if you look at the way that Paul shares the gospel throughout the New Testament, the New Testament authors share the gospel, they include this definitive gospel that we've just talked about, the person and work of Jesus, but they also talk about other things, and it depends on the group to which they're speaking. So in Acts 2, you have one version of the gospel, uh, or, or there's, there's kind of certain things included, certain things assumed, and then it, and, and, uh, Peter is speaking to the very devout Jewish people in Jerusalem at the time, they believed in God. They, they didn't need anyone to tell them about this one God. That just wasn't relevant or necessary. But then you have Paul speaking in Acts 17, and he's speaking to pagans and Greek philosophers with a completely different worldview. And so some of the implicit gospel truths that are included are pretty different based on the circumstances. And for us, it's important to consider what are the truths that are really necessary to even believe the gospel in the first place, even to be open to the possibility that this is true, that are assumed in our culture, and, and what are the things that are not assumed in our culture, or in the, the, the culture to which we're speaking? Maybe it's not in America, maybe it's in a different part of the world, or maybe it's a, um, a very specific subculture here in this city even. So I think that's something important for us to consider, and we certainly have the freedom and I think should, in all wisdom, alongside of the gospel, preach to the foundational truths that one needs to understand 
in order to receive the gospel. Does that make sense? Am I, am I saying too many words? Is this too much? Is it too much? Be honest with me. No, don't be honest with me, because what am I going to do at this point? <clears throat> um, you can tell me afterwards, but please don't. Um, and we're going to get to that a little bit next week. We're going to kind of roll out, uh, we'll, we'll work on learning to communicate the gospel effectively and clearly. We're going to kind of roll out a, a tool that we're going to emphasize using in order to communicate the gospel that I think will be very helpful to you. And it, it is the gospel, but in it there are, there are also some implied gospel truths. So let's look at these real quick. And, you know, as we kind of start to wrap up here, um, the first thing is front-end gospel implications. That are, these are things that are really necessary for someone to believe in order to even believe the gospel. Um, some of these might seem obvious and, and maybe not. I don't think these are assumed for the most part uh, or at all in our culture. And that is, number one, the existence of God. God doesn't exist. The gospel is not true. It is nonsense. We have to believe in the existence of God in order to believe in the gospel. Whoops, I just dropped something here. Okay, um, and I'll just roll through these. Number two, the existence of historical and moral truth. Some of you may think, well, that, that's obvious, historical truth. Not, not necessarily. Some, some feel we're living in a post-truth world, culture right now in the West, and that is even historical events are only true from the perspective of you know, someone who witnessed said events. So if I believe in relativism, in that sense, historical relativism, truth relativism, I can say, well, that's true for you, definitely. That is true. You believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Man, that's awesome. That is true for you. But that is not true for me. The gospel does not allow us to have that perspective. The gospel... It is explicit, absolute historical truth about what Jesus has done, what God has done in history through Jesus Christ. Not from the perspective of any one individual, but these things truly happened. So we have to believe in historical truth and also moral truth. Now, this is the one maybe you're even more familiar with today. Say, well, that, that's right for you, but not for me. That is good for you, but not for me. In order to be able to understand the need for the gospel, we have to understand that there are objective, that there certainly are some things in some moral ethical questions that are gray, at least in our ability to understand what the right choice is, right? That is true. We can't argue against that. That's obvious. But there are moral values and duties that are absolute, that have been given to us by way of our conscience, that human beings have understood for thousands of years, and that have also been given to us by way of God's revelation through Jesus in the scriptures. And in order to understand the gospel, I've got to understand that there are moral absolutes. There are moral truths. There are morals, moral values and duties that are solid, that are unchanging, that are not dependent on my perspective. And that is a truth that is not easily understood in our culture that has been under attack for quite some time. And I think we are seeing a lot of fruit, a lot of destructive fruit from that ideology in our world today and perhaps in our individual lives. Uh, number three, the Bible is the decisive revelation of God. 
this is an implicit truth that is kind of a foundation upon which the Bible rests, that, that the Bible, or that, that the gospel rests, that the Bible is uh, trustworthy. Because as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, looking back at the, the Old Testament, this is accord, the gospel according to the scriptures. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised according to the scriptures, according to the Old Testament. And also the very record of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ, it's in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels. This is where we find it. In these eyewitnesses that proclaimed the things that Jesus had done and went on to die for this proclamation, to suffer for it, to never recant these ordinary men and women who changed the world. Uh, the fourth thing is the possibility of miracles. If miracles are impossible, the gospel is not true. We've got to believe that it's possible, right, that God can do a miracle in order to believe in a miracle. And it, what's interesting is that some of the most prominent biblical scholars, and in some of the ones, you know, for you students, if you take a New Testament class at Ohio State, uh, some of your textbooks are written by an individual who has an ideology that miracles are impossible, any and every explanation, no matter how absurd, no matter how ridiculous, no matter how unlikely, if it's not a miracle, then that explanation is more plausible than uh, for, for explaining the, the set of facts surrounding the resurrection. It's more plausible than God raising Jesus from the dead because miracles are absolutely impossible. This is the ideology of some of our teachers nowadays. Um, and it provides a foundation that the gospel cannot, cannot stand on. And uh, the fourth implication of the gospel is uh, that, that's necessary, foundation that's necessary for the gospel is human sin, that human beings have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. Romans, which it's kind of expressed purpose is to lay out the gospel. This is why we use so many verses from Romans so often when we share the gospel. Uh, man, there's a lot about sin in there. And this is a tough one for us. This is a tough one for our culture to believe in the existence of our own personal sin and that there's weight to it, that it matters. Okay, real quick, some back-end implications for the gospel. Number one, if the gospel is true, then Jesus Christ, he will come again to raise the dead, the wicked unto judgment, and the righteous unto eternal life. If the gospel is true, this is happening, folks. This is going to happen in the future. Jesus is coming back. There will be judgment and there will be reward. There will be judgment and there will be salvation if the gospel is true. And the... Last implication here. The gospel... It demands a response. It absolutely demands a response from us. First of all, personally. The gospel demands a response from us personally. Jesus' death is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. His death is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. But that forgiveness, it's not actualized or realized 
on an individual basis without a response. In other words, we've been given the gift of forgiveness through Jesus' sacrifice and his suffering. But we are still stuck in our sins and and we will receive judgment from God unless we respond to the gospel. As our verse in, in Thessalonians made clear, And what is that response? (laughs) It's not church attendance. It's not good works. It's not being a perfect Christian. It is to confess and believe. To confess and believe. Romans 10, 9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That means God. He is the authority of my life. He is Lord. The direction of my life is shifting to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And there are certainly other passages to take into account as well as Romans 10, 9. And when we take those passages into account, I think we can synthesize and say to confess and believe. To confess is to literally turn from our sin and turn towards Jesus. To turn from our sin that implies confessing our sin, acknowledging our sin, recognizing it, our need, our need for God. We've got to recognize our need for God to respond to the gospel. We have to. We absolutely have to. To acknowledge Jesus. I'm acknowledging his identity as God, as Lord, as the authority. And to turn to Jesus. This is confession. To turn from your sin, to acknowledge Jesus, and to turn to Jesus You're going one way, you're living in sin, you're counting on your own works of righteousness and turning around saying, Jesus, you are Lord, forgive me of my sins. I wanna follow you. I give my life to you. And to believe, to believe that Jesus died for your sins. He died for your sins and that he rose from the dead, that he truly rose from the dead not as some fantastical ghost, but he physically rose from the dead. He will never die again. And he invites us to share in that resurrection, in that victory. The gospel also demands a particular lifestyle for Christians. In closing here, will will you hear this call? We read this verse earlier. Will you hear this call from God? For you who know Christ in here tonight, will you hear this call from God and commit your life to it afresh? For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Because of Jesus, will you live for the gospel. Because of his salvation, will you take action for the gospel? Will you make small sacrifices for the gospel? Just the little things. Will you reorient the direction of your life for the gospel? Will you take a risk for the gospel? Will you consider your resources for the gospel? 
If we answer that call, we will join with Jesus Christ in the most important work in history, the saving of men and women, to be spared the horrors of judgment, to be united with God in his perfect kingdom forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh vision for the gospel. Pray that you'd help us to respond all here tonight who have not responded to the gospel, Lord. Pray, God, that you would give us, that you would draw us in. Lord, that you would give us faith, that you would help us to confess and believe in the identity and the work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of our souls. Lord, I pray for, oh God, would you help us would you help us to be motivated freshly for the gospel, Lord, to, to, to break free from apathy, Lord, to throw off any kind of false ideas or teaching, Lord, and to run for you, to love others, to love the lost, to love the world, to lay our lives down for others, God, and to care about the things that are on your heart, Lord, the saving of men and women here in our city, in our families, on our campuses, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, and even unto the ends of the earth, God. Lord, would you help us to care about the souls of men and women who are separated from you, God? Empower us, enlighten us, and give us freedom to live for you and to live for the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.